Pop Culture Pastor. So, I used to think Star Trek was better than Star Wars because uh, it was more political. There was more geopolitics going on there. Uh, I used to think that was more intriguing. And then at some point in my life, I reached a point where I was like, oh, I hate Star Trek because it's too geopolitical. I hate politics. Um, you might be like amongst the minority that just likes Star Trek because of the geopoliticalness of it. It just made it more in there. Was, I think there was more intrigue. There were multiple sides to it, too. You know, there were multiple factions, whereas in Star Wars, you just had the. The two. The two. You get the Rebellion and the Empire, right? And then Star Trek, you had the Federation, but the Romulans and the Klingons and, you know, lots of different alien species that were kind of all doing their own thing. You had a neutral zone, which, you know, seemed very realistic to me. Yeah. I don't know. And Star Wars had a talking large dog. Oh, hello. <laughs> good uh, morning, afternoon, good evening. Whenever you're listening to this podcast, welcome. This is the Pop Culture Pastor podcast. My name is Dave. Cody is with me as always. Yes. We don't have a guest this week, Cody. That's kind of sad. Yeah. I, I think nobody wanted to come on and admit what movies make them cry. Oh, jabronis. <laughs> Wow. We went right to the J word. <laughs> oh, man. That was rough. Uh, that is the subject that we will get to later on, uh, is movies that make us cry. I've got a lot. I've got at least four that that immediately come to mind. And I wanted to pick ones that weren't super obvious. You know, I felt like there were some that are super obvious cry movies. Notebook. <laughs> Serious? Not for me. Oh, okay. Like, I literally posed this question at work, and um, a person came up to me, one of my friends, and was like, the notebook, I can't make it through it. Yeah. And I'm like, eh. I really wanted to get a female for this podcast, this particular one. And I do think we would have heard the notebook, because I don't think either you or I are going to bring up the notebook. Uh, no. No. Um, no. But because different things make girls and guys cry, I think. Anyways, that's what we're going to talk about later on. As always, though, here on the Pop Culture Podcast, we start off with just whatever's making news this week, pop culture news. Um, in the last 48 hours as we're recording this, Henry Cavill apparently did an interview. I'm reading this on uh, Screen Rant. Uh, but he did an interview where he he talks about he's given people hope that he would still be play Superman in the DCEU. Um, and he talked about it. Uh, it was actually an interview with GQ. That's who it was with. And Cavill talked about directly about the direction he would like to take Superman in after the events of Justice League or Zack Snyder's Justice League, as it were. And. He said he's still eager to flesh the story out. He said this, quote, 
I was very keen on really fleshing out Superman's early stages of his journey first. We had Man of Steel, then we went quite a bit darker with Batman versus Superman, and if he were to succumb to the anti-life equation and become bad Superman, I really wanted to make sure we saw the hero Superman and we saw the true symbol of hope, the beacon of light, before we went down the path of darkness and then redemption, and it's still something I'm very keen to flesh out. So, I took this as a, just a subtle little dig to the DCEU or Zack Snyder or whoever that he thought the story was a little rushed, which, duh. Spoilers, it was. He never really got to be Superman. No, like the part that they focused on and did a good job on in Man of Steel was him being Clark in the, like, Going all remote, like, oh, it's tough to have these abilities and not use them. He falls for Lois in the first movie. Yeah. I mean, they end up together by the end of the first movie. I just, yeah, everything about what Zack Snyder did in DC in the DCEU just felt so rushed. Superman doesn't really get to be Superman. And Clark, in that way, that's what makes the 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 Christopher Reeve Superman so endearing is that for at least a movie and a half, <laughs> he gets to be like this bumbling Clark, which is very much a creation of his own making. Yeah. Like where he's throwing people off the scent of how could this, you know, un uncoordinated, awkward, you know, beanpole of a man ever be Superman. And I just, I miss that. Because that, you know, uh, Henry Cavill, he gets... He's never really that guy. He's Clark, uh, but then he never gets to really play the part of Metropolis Clark. Yeah. He's he's Smallville Clark. He's very broody, which Smallville Clark should probably be. Mm-hmm. Um, teenager, brood, broody Clark. And then he goes right into like this conflict that's very existential for him, like dealing with Kryptonians and he has to kill the last one. Like, Oh man. The more I think about that movie, there's a man of steel's actually gotten a, a, a quite a following in recent years. I've noticed that there's like the kind of this cult fandom of it. Um, maybe it's because people heard that it's loosely based on my real life story. Oh God. <laughs> Come on. You mean that he wore KU shirts and Royals shirts like you? And grew up in Kansas and just <laughs> happens to be rough and tumble. I mean, the similarities so. are endless. <laughs> I'm glad people are starting to pick up on it. So. You know, it took us a while, but I see it now. You're right. I see it. Um, the first half of Man of Steel is a really good movie. I think it's really good. But then I think... You know, uh, Marvel did this so well in saying with Spider-Man, they said, we're not going to make another origin movie. Mm -hmm. But there had been so less time between the Sony Spider-Man movies and bringing them into the MCU. The time between, um, what was the guy's name who played Brandon Ralph? Yeah. Who played him in the, uh, the, the singer movie. Um, that was done by, directed by, uh, Singer. Yeah. And I, it was a Brian Singer. I sure. Why not? I can't remember his first name, but he directed the first X-Men movie. Uh, and he did the Superman movie and, and that movie was okay, 
But it was like they were they tried to follow the same route. It's like we don't want to do an origin movie. But then why does he start off in Smallville then? Like you told the story, we see his dad die. Mm-hmm. And then you you never let us get to see him as as Superman, which is like this kind of what Henry Cavill says in this interview. This beacon of light, a symbol of hope. This guy who's always kind of got a smile on his face and he says, "Kids, you know, it's it's all about truth, justice, and not the American way anymore because they got rid of that. But truth, justice, and what is he, what is it now? I don't know. I don't know. It's something terrible. Yeah, <laughs> like for me, I, I I feel that Superman. You could do an origin story. That's fine. But I think DC EU. Uh, felt the pressure of the MCU, like they had already been well established. They were producing multiple blockbusters each year, and so to make up for lost ground, because the only like superhero they would touch was Batman, um, they decided we're just going to launch hardcore and fast into like these characters, and you're not going to get much development time. You're just going to instantly know them we're going to get to all the good stories early on which did the good stories a lot of injustice um because batman versus superman could have been epic if like there had been several superman movies before this and quite a few batman movies as well yeah where you kind of see there's this conflict and turmoil yeah and i don't think you get to the spider-man movies again being so close together it almost benefits enough that them being so close together to say hey we don't have to do an origin story here yeah even though it's a different kid playing him and it's technically a different character um, I don't think we need the origin story here to get us up to speed, but the Superman movies, Brandon Routh Superman is completely different from Henry Cavill's Superman. Oh yeah. It's a different feel. And I just feel like, yeah, in order to be in, in with the character, we just needed more. We needed to fall in love with his version of Superman and we don't even get that chance. And before we know it, He's killing the bad guy at the end. He's he's together with Lois Lane by the end of the first movie. And then the next time we see him, he's immediately, him and Batman are going at each other. Yeah. And he dies. Like, at the, the second movie he appears in, they do the death of Superman, which, okay. Then he comes back in Justice League. He's out of control. Uh, again. They, I feel they felt the the pressure and were trying to make up for the lost ground. And they had all these stories, which are great stories, yeah. but they did not do them justice. And the kicker is in the epilogue, what Henry Cavill's referring to, that in, in Zack Snyder's um, DCEU, he succumbs to the anti-life equation, whatever that is. It's, you know, what it's some red herring in the movie, right? It's some, Mm -hmm. uh, whatchamacallit. And in, in the epilogue, Superman has gone bad, sort of like injustice gods among us. Yeah. The problem is, is injustice is such a good story and jarring only because there's years of setup of Superman being the boy scout. Yeah. So for him to go so incredibly bad because of grief, 
and anger that he has accidentally been tricked into killing Lois Lane, who's pregnant with his child. That's the whole conceit of that story. Yeah. Like it's earned. You you earn this shocking kind of like, oh man, how did this happen? Whereas in this movie, like he's been kind of broody and yeah, it's not really earned. You're just like, oh, he was always a loose cannon. Like Bruce Wayne was right in this in the DCEU. Yeah, you you basically proven Bruce right. Every concern, he, Lex Luthor's right in the DCEU. Anybody, you prove him right. He's like, yes, this he was always a giant concern, and we're right. Yeah, anyone that ever had beef with soups, you are right. Um, but. I wonder if maybe they saw, uh, uh, what was that, uh, James Gunn movie? Um, was it Brightside, Burnside? Oh, the, the one, the bad Superman kid. Yeah. Bad Superboy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. I never saw it. I wanted to see uh, it. And I, or Brightburn. Brightburn. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, um, maybe. Superboy as horror movie. Um, which was phenomenal as if you're going into this as like, Oh, this is like a scary movie, but with comic book heroes. Um, but yeah, no, um, maybe Zack Snyder was really motivated by that and was like, we're going to do this. (laughs) It's like if Lex Luthor made a snuff film, right? (laughs) It's like what that is. Um, I never got to see that. I I really should see that. Uh, the bottom line here is I love Henry Cavill. I think he he's a great Superman. I don't think he was given much to work with, uh, which is unfortunate. I don't think he got a chance to shine as the Superman. He was immediately pit into this like moody, I got problems, Superman, you know? And literally with the DCEU, they could have like built this franchise to this point and earned it Mm -hmm. um, and it would be something so different than what Marvel is currently on trajectory for. I mean, think about if when they made man of steel instead of general Zod, which is it's too quick to go to a Kryptonian bad guy. Yeah. Like you don't want to do anything with Kryptonians, get them. We want to see him being the fish out of water for a while. He's dealing with earthlings, but it's also, I think too early for Lex Luthor. This is one way they could have improved on the Christopher Reeve movies. Make the bad guy in the man of steel, like brainiac or one of these other random enemies that Superman has. Um, like, Brainiac would have been great. You can tease Lex Luthor being somewhere in the background, yeah. but not have him like come out and be the the catalyst for the film. So, yeah. Anyways, Cavill had had that quote in it, and I just thought it was really interesting that ooh, he's he's saying like I think what we all thought, which is, man, there's a lot of good movie in Man of Steel, but it's not quite there. And then Justice League and all that. And he's saying, I really wish I could have fleshed out, you know, beacon of light, mountain of hope, Superman. <laughs> yeah, that would have been would have been nice. Um, okay, next news item. Why do people keep asking these old directors what they think of superhero movies? Can, can we get to the bottom of that? I'm going to assume because their names carry so much weight. 
And there, there might be some people that are genuinely like wanting superhero films to to take up that mantle of being uh, all time great movies. And if it has the seal of someone famous that is an all timer, then you can put them in that pantheon. It's kind of like with literature and you get like uh, people that are all about the classical literature. And then you say Harry Potter is an all time great series. And then they're like, how dare you? (laughs) Who do you think you are? I am. (laughs) Exactly. And so I, I, I think that's part of it. And then also there might be some people that are just like, I want to hear what old Marty's going, how he's going to crush him today. Yeah, I mean, I get annoyed with the people asking. Why do you keep asking? So the the most recent one is Ridley Scott. Yeah. uh, Director of Alien, Gladiator, Blade Runner, which is basically a comic book on the screen. Yeah. It's like a graphic novel. I know it's not, but I mean, it's basically what it is. It's sci-fi. And someone asked Ridley Scott, um what he thought about the blockbuster superhero flicks. Clearly, when you say that, you're saying, what do you think about the MCU? What do you think about Marvel? Yeah. And he said this, quote, their scripts are not any explicative good. (laughs) (laughs) I narrowed it down to this, he said. Almost always, the best films are driven by the characters. And we'll come to superheroes after this if you want, because I'll crush it. I'll explicative crush it. They're explicative, boring as explicative. (laughs) I mean, he went off on it. They're F-word, boring as S-word. He then went on to list his own films as examples of great scripted superhero movies, despite them not really fitting into the genre. Alien, which uh, Alien has made a lot of comic book appearances after those movies. Uh, Gladiator. Which I would say is, um, you know, it's kind of marketed as an action guy movie, but it's really not. Yeah. Um, and Blade Runner, which we've already talked about, Ridley says they're superhero movies. So why don't the superhero movies have better stories? Sorry, I got off the rail, but I mean, come on. I, I mean, first of all, I couldn't disagree more with him. Um, what was the movie he did most recently with the. Uh, that was supposed to be like the prequel to the alien movies about like yeah. basically the creators of life and I, aliens. Uh, that was a terrible movie. Yeah. It got all this hype and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, this, this happened about seven to 10 days ago where he went off, he went off the deep end and just crushed superhero movie, movies. And then in the meantime, in our this week's version of Life Comes At You Fast. Yeah. His movie, The Last Duel, bombed. So uh, this movie starring Matt Damon, uh, Ben Affleck. Uh, oh, I completely forgot that movie was even coming out. Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. So Ridley, like... <laughs> I I really don't like the Alien series at all. Like, I would say if you get rid of that, your work's pretty good. But, like, with that being on your resume, I know there's a lot of people that are 
very much into aliens and then alien versus predator and that sort of stuff. No, no, I'm out for it. So Ridley Scott directed this last duel. Um, Ben Affleck, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, based on Eric Jager's book of the same name. It only made $27 million, $100 million budget. Um, those two names together. He said Disney did a, a fantastic promotion job, so he didn't blame the promotion. said the bosses loved the movie, and then he said this. I think what it boils down to, what we've got today are audiences who are brought up on these explicative cell phones. He cusses a lot. He does. The millennials do not ever want to be taught anything unless you're told it on the cell phone, he continued. I love that Ridley Scott in the last week just went grumpy old full. He went full on grumpy old man. He was like, We used to have cell phones and we liked it. We loved it. It's like, whoa. I mean, this kind of came out of nowhere with him. Oh, my God. And it really struck a chord. So he threw millennials under the bus. That hurts. Uh, <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ridley. He blamed them for his new movie. I just love that, you know, not even barely a week ago, dude was crushing superhero movies, which have made a billion dollars. And then his movie bombs. And he's like, you darn millennials. <laughs> it's all the millennials fault. Oh, I imagine that like people like Orson Welles probably had issues with Ridley Scott when he was <laughs> up and coming, and now Ridley Scott is that old man that is yelling at everyone to get off his lawn. I mean, doesn't it? This is the weird thing about art, though. You kind of touched on this. What is it? Because you mentioned Harry Potter, the books, mm. the Harry Potter books, and like J.K. Rowling. Rowling, I mean, she borrows from all over the place with those books, mythology and other stories. But at what point do we understand, like, well, what is art for? Like, on some level, it's an it's an outpouring of our, you know, creativity, Mm -hmm. which you know, if 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 you allow us to get super Christian here, we create because God created. It's the part of us that's made in his image that we want to create. Yeah. But what's the point of creativity? Isn't the point of creativity to to put whatever you want out there and then share it? This part where we people have to like it, and then we get through the hipster thing with it. We're like, well, that's not real art like I like. You know? That's the very capitalist part here. Yeah. And I... I could also see Ridley, like, for a while there was this time where, like, indie films were huge. That you would get, like, these huge name actors to act in this independent film. And then it would, like, sweep the awards at all the award shows. I could see Ridley probably being upset with those people. Like, you're just capitalizing on this... Uh, marketing strategy of a limited released film, which should tell you the story's no good. Yeah. I think, I think the confusion about the superhero movies is they don't understand. They're looking at it from as just the, like, this is just something someone thought up. Mm-hmm. But they, I don't think they understand this is created IP. This is already intellectual property of stories. So we've talked about this before. The Marvel stories they're doing are just mainly stories from the last 
from like 20, 30 years ago in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of these stories that they're turning into these movies are stories that have been in the comics when we were growing up. So there's like a nostalgia factor to this while at the same time showing it and delivering it to us in a way that we couldn't have imagined when we read the story. Yeah. And there's even some creative details I think Harry Potter people can relate to that. Yeah. Very much so. And so... With that, I, I'm i saying, forget you, Ridley, for now. Yeah. Well, I don't understand why they, more of them don't just say, well, I don't get it. But it's not for me. It's for the people who pay the money to go see it that enjoy it. Yeah. And that's, I wonder, like, if you asked him a different question in a different way. So if I was an interviewer, and I'd love, Ridley Scott, if you're listening to this podcast, first of all, how'd that happen? <laughs> but secondly... I think if you'd love, I'd love to have Ridley Scott on the show and I don't want to ask him about superhero movies, which is a dumb, lazy question, It is, which is the part of this we haven't talked about yet. Like, why are they asking him these questions? And I would do an interview where I just said, why did you want to start making movies? Why do you do this? Like, what's your favorite part about it? And I imagine he'd tell us something about like, I just love to do it. I love to create in this way. I love to do this sort of thing. And it's like, yeah, that's it, man. Yeah. It. It's weird that people keep asking, like, these older, well, well well-established, huge-name directors, uh, Ridley Scott, Martin Scorsese's one that they've asked this question to, and it's like, these guys don't make those films. Like, that's not their genre or their style or their target audience. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, it, it makes little sense. Yeah, um, let's let's talk about Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, so there's, I mean, man, it just seems like stuff's dropping left and right here. The only thing not dropping is any sign from the studio that Tobey Maguire and hey, uh, Andrew, Garfield. Andrew Garfield are actually in this movie. Which at this point, everyone knows they are. There's absolutely no chance they're not in this movie. Based on what we've seen, like, yeah, they're in this movie. Clearly, other Spider-Man are in this movie. Um, so that's the only thing. But everything else is dropping, including we've gotten a good look at all the villains, right? Yes. And even so much so that, like, the part the villains play. So, like, in some of the commercials, it's clear that Dr. Octopus, Doc Ock, is maybe helping our Peter at some point in this movie while still being in kind of captivity. Yeah, but he's he's clearly, you know, he's in giving him information and helping him in that way. Uh, So we've seen all the villains. One of the villains we've seen, Sandman, and one we haven't seen, the Rhino. So the Sandman, played by Thomas Hayden Church, uh, was from Spider-Man 3. Was that the Tobey Maguire, the third, or was that a two? Was Uh, he in two or three? I think he was in three. So three has uh, Topher in it. Yeah, but there were several villains in that movie. Yeah. That part of the reason it wasn't very good. Yeah, I, I think that the guy from Wings was in... That would be Tom Hayden <laughs> Church. Yeah. What's in it? Yes. Everyone not alive in the 80s just was like, Wings? What are you talking about? Wings George the, of the Jungle. Wings the bad guy in George of the Jungle. Wings was a sitcom from the creators of Cheers, in case you were curious, about, a, um, about an airport in Nantucket. And it had Tony Shalhoub in it. So, oh man, it did have Tom Satan Church, Tony Shalhoub. There were a lot of people in that. Timothy Daly. Yeah, there was a fun cast. I actually liked the show. So, yeah. Um, 
uh, the rhino played by Paul Giamatti shows up in the Andrew Garfield movies. Yeah. In like this ginormous metal tank suit. Um, so that was a little bit different as far as the character goes. Well, anyways, the reason I bring these guys up, Sony is reportedly developing Spider-Man spinoff movies for both the Sandman and the Rhino. No, <laughs> um, that that's not needed. So, Let, I mean, let's have this conversation about Sony and Marvel's and Disney's team up here. Because for Marvel, it's great. We get Spider-Man. Yeah. We get him in the MCU. From the Sony side of it, like, this is what I, I think it looks like. Do you ever see, well, it's almost like Sony's the dog. You know your dog when it really wants to go outside and you walk to the door and it's like banging its head on the door. It's like jumping up on you and you're like, stop, can you just wait? I'm trying to get the leash on you, man. Like, you're trying yeah. to get the leash on your dog, and, and she's not cooperating. That's Sony. It's like they're just chomping at the bit to pull a Zack Snyder DCEU. They just want to rush all these weird characters out there um, and advance the story in ways that it doesn't need to be advanced. We don't need a Paul Giamatti Rhino movie. I mean, like, so... You're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to go back to the DC uh, universe. But literally, I think Batman villains are the only ones that should ever have a solo movie. They're interesting. I don't need a Sandman or a Rhino or like I mean, even uh, the Mandarin uh, in Iron Man 3. I don't need that. I can't really think of a Spider-Man villain. You're right. They there seems to be heroes who have villains who who their like um, their uh, villain set just works better mm -hmm. for individual stories. And yeah, like would I would I watch a Joker movie? Well, I have. Yeah, I have too. <laughs> it was. It, I mean, it was weird, but I, you know. I would still, I think he's interesting as a character. I Poor think. Bobby De Niro in that movie, though. <laughs> but I'm trying to think of one Spider-Man villain. Like, listen, they don't play Venom as a villain. No. That's part of the reasons I'm not, I'm not really down with those movies either, those Sony Venom movies. Because they play him as an anti-hero. And I'm not really interested. I want to see Venom as arch nemesis to Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, that's what makes him interesting. To there me. would have to be a major heel turn from where they're at right now. Yeah. The Marvel villains just as a whole that I think could carry their own movie. Dr. Doom could carry his own movie. Um, I mean, Marvel's villains. Well, just villains in general. I mean, you're right. The Batman villains are pretty fleshed out. Yeah. But I, I can't think off the top. That'd be a good question. We should ask the, the, the pod listeners that we should put that on the, the website. Uh, we'll put that on there. This comes out on a Friday, maybe this, uh, that, that this weekend. We'll put it out there and say, hey, we had this conversation on the pod. What villains do you think could carry a standalone movie? And why are they not Sandman? <laughs> I, I, I get, listen, I almost want to fall asleep right now. I just want to take a little nap thinking about a Sandman movie. Um, going back to Harry Potter, Voldemort could carry his own movie. There's yeah. enough. 
yeah. that you're like, okay, how did we get to the point where Harry's parents meet their demise? Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Strange, he's not a villain yet, but Baron Mordo, yeah, who's not a villain, technically speaking, yet in the MCU, but probably will be. He's he's one of Dr. Strange's arch nemesis, nemesis in the comics. Mm-hmm. He, that'd be a great standalone movie, him kind of transitioning into that villain role. Because they, you know, they did a lot of character development for him, even in a short amount of time in the first Doctor Strange movie. Uh, and it'd be great to dig into his motivations. But, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I just thought the Rhino as a character in those Garfield in that Garfield movie. Yucky. No, no, come on. And then the Sandman? The Sandman. What? <sighs> like, if you want to make that interesting, put it out under a different subsidiary. I don't know if Sony owns them, but... Uh, the Sandman story brought to you by Hallmark. <laughs> Show me a totally tongue in cheek Hallmark Sandman movie. <laughs> then it would be ironically awesome. <laughs> but I can't, I can't imagine. That's the only way I can imagine that being interesting to me. Yeah. You would have to spruce that up quite a bit. <laughs> okay. Um, it's time for us to talk about our main subject. Let's, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll we'll talk about movies that make us cry. All right, we're back, Cody. Yep, that we are. We're back and uh, we're ready to discuss our main subject, which for today is uh, movies that make us cry. We're we're about to get extremely open with people. Uh, very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. That's I'm I'm not I'm feeling a little uncomfortable because uh. I'm about to like I'm about to really share what movies make me cry and probably get into the why I think that is. Yeah. First of all, can we just talk about, <coughs> excuse me, can we just talk about how wonderful a medium movies are to be able to, uh, I just preached a few Sundays back on our lack of empathy mm-hmm. as a culture in church. We talked about empathy and how important that is. Isn't it awesome that we have this vehicle of creation and entertainment that literally teaches us how to empathize? That's what we do. When a movie makes us cry, it's because we are empathizing with the characters. Yeah. And so this is a cool thing. I think this is awesome that we get to 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 get into these lose ourselves in these you know, these fake realities and practice how, what it means to empathize, what it means to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Yeah, that it it's not something that we openly admit usually. And so mm. I, I'm eager to hear your list because, like, mine is kind of limited in the movie realm, but TV shows, it opens up. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't have any off the top of my head for TV shows um, yet. Maybe yet. one maybe one will come to me um, when you start thinking of yours. Maybe that will spark me. But I want to allow space at the end to talk about the TV episodes, too, because I'm sure there are some out there. Do you want me to go ahead and start? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, the first one that comes to my mind 
is the 1987 Spielberg movie Empire of the Sun. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is a war drama. It stars a young Christian Bale. This is like his his big break, and he's a kid, and he plays uh, Jamie Graham, a privileged English boy who's living in China when the Japanese invade and force all the foreigners into prison camps. Jamie is captured with an American sailor played by John Malkovich, who's wonderful in this movie, who looks out for him while they're in the camp together. Even though he is separated from his parents and in a hostile environment, Jamie maintains his dignity and youthful spirits, providing a beacon of hope for the others held captive with him. So, oh man, uh, this only gets a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes, which kind of blows my mind because I think this is a wonderful movie. And those that have seen it, this came out on Christmas Day in 1987. Um, And this World War II setting... It's it's a different setting too because it's the main character is the main characters are British. Um, they're in China, but Japanese invades, and this young boy gets separated from his parents in the chaos, and gets captured and taken to basically internment camps. And we watch him over the course of the movie get like. I mean, Christian Bale doing Christian Bale things, even as a kid, right? He starts looking worn. He starts looking skinnier. I'd swear he starts looking skinnier in the movie. Um, And as people get unhealthier, they're in these camps. And there's a particular scene in the movie now. um, Christian Bale's character, Jamie Graham, the kid, he's very much into airplanes. So he, like, plays with these toy airplanes. And he knows what kind of airplanes uh, they are including the American uh, fighter plane, which is the P-51, right? Mm-hmm. And in the whole movie, he's playing with this. And then at some point, he's 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 um, in the camp, and there's a bombing raid. And there's fighting. There's these fighting planes, planes fighting it out, dogfighting over the camp. And in the chaos and the explosions, Christian Bale's kid, uh, the kid runs up to the roof of the the hospital building where he's been helping. He's, he's actually been helping the doctor. The doctor's kind of taking him under his wing in the camp and he's running around the top of this building and he's shouting P 51 Cadillac of the sky. You know, he's like super excited. Well, and the doctor gets concerned. He's like, where's Jim? Well, they're cause they're dropping bombs and there's shooting going on. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they both realize he's on like all the people in there realize he's on the roof and the doctor runs up there. There's explosions happening. And he's like, oh, can I get to him? And he does, he gets to him and, and he's not cooperating because he's so excited about seeing the, these American airplanes and the excitement from his face. And finally the doctor shakes him. He just shakes him violently to try and get him out of this like kind of hyper excitement. And oh my goodness, Cody, I mean, it, you knew Christian Bale was going to be somebody in this moment because he shakes him and the excitement drains from his face while the chaos is still happening around him. His face goes flat and he looks into the doctor's eyes and he says, I can't remember what my mother looks like. And you're just mm. in that moment. I remember just losing it. Just absolutely. I think I saw this movie. So I'm 11 years old when this movie comes out. Single mom raised me, you know, like and in that moment, I just couldn't imagine what it would be like to be separated from your parents, your source of comfort. And in that moment, he had kind of gotten 
he's in this dangerous situation, but he's so out of it, he doesn't even know it. And when he shook back to reality, he says the most real thing in that moment. And, and the fake excitement, the excitement that was distracting him goes away and he says, I can't remember what my mother looked like. And in the middle of this chaos, all of a sudden the doctor forgets about getting him off the roof too and just holds him. Mm. Oh, such a good movie. Such a good movie. And, and that's not the only time you cry. He befriends a Japanese boy on the, from the other side of the fence. And something happens to him later in the movie. Some soldiers kill him when he was trying to give him some fruit. Um, and then at the end of the movie, when the war is over, I'm getting tears. I got tears now just thinking about it. But at the end of the movie, his mom walks right past him, doesn't recognize him. He, they, they end up finding him and recognizing him. But at first, she walks past him, doesn't recognize him. And you're just, your heart is like beating out of your chest. I think it's one of Spielberg's best movies that nobody talks about. Empire of the Sun. I never talk about that movie. So, yeah. You, have you seen it? Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Um, like, I have probably only seen it through once. And <sighs> then, like, just random clips. So, Side note, John Malkovich is amazing in that movie. As the American captive soldier that you're not sure you like or dislike. <laughs> Is John Malkovich ever, like, not amazing? Uh, no. No, he's not. Wonderful actor. And in that movie, he's, like, peak John Malkovich, where he's, whether he's good or bad is sort of amorphous, right? Yeah. He's very human in that way. Um, like, in the movie Of Mice and Men, phenomenal with Gary Sinise. But when he dies, that's kind of sad. I'm... I'm not going to cry over that one though, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, that's a good, that's a good choice. That's not an obvious one, um, to, to list off. Um, so, uh, yeah, give me, give me one of yours. Um, okay. So I want to go with a very obvious one and it's a very obvious scene, although as an adult or as like a married adult my reason for getting choked up or teary-eyed or crying has changed from when i first saw the film which i was junior year in college so 21 ish um up mm. the disney animated classic um 10 minutes into it they kill off uh, the wife. And at that time... Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't watched it uh, by now, I mean, it's out like 11 plus years. So <sighs> that's on you. Um, so at that time, it was just like all of a sudden you have this beautiful little love story. And then, boom, she's dead. And like I, I got choked up and teary-eyed then. But re-watching it now as an adult that's married... Um, like identifying with the struggle of having a miscarriage. Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, that one gets me like in animated movies. I tend to cry more than in like live action ones. I had a feeling you were going to mention this movie because I've heard you talk about it before. Yeah. So I intentionally left it off my list, but I cried like a baby the first time I saw this. Oh, yeah. I, it's my contention that the first 10 minutes of this movie are the best love story ever told on a, on a screen. And um, it's, and it's in a Pixar cartoon 
And it's, oh man. Take that, Nicholas Sparks. They managed to capture everything that needs to be captured without saying a word. Yeah. There's no words. It's just these little vignettes that we're, that we're seeing in this like kind of montage. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And, yeah, by the time by the time he gets to the end, you get to the end of that little vignette, and he's got the walker. Yeah. And he hits the man. Like, so, uh, yeah, the, the, when I lost it was not when the wife dies. I start tearing up then. But when I lost it is when he loses his temper, and he hits the man with his cane. And you can see, like, Pixar's amazing because you can see in the character's face how sorry he is and yeah. how out of control. I'm going to start crying now. How out of his control it was and that it was his brokenness coming out of him and it wasn't him. And there's just so, like, if you can't identify with that, yeah, I don't, I don't know what you can identify with where we've all done something like that where it was our anger, it was our hurt. And we were acting out of that and it wasn't us and the sadness that comes along with like, I don't want people to think that's me. Mm -hmm. Oh, that moment in that movie. Everything's built on that. That first 10 minutes, the friendship between him and the boy. Yeah. And like later on in the movie, I get like choked up with Doug, the dog. Doug the dog, best character in a Pixar movie yeah, ever. <laughs> and I don't want to hear it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a yeah. great one. So, yeah, that one's on my list. And then, like, I have two more that, like, I wouldn't, like, go into great detail about. So they'll be, like, at the end. Okay. But. Okay. Um, the next one I want to talk about. Well, we can talk. We can alternate. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if we don't have a lot to say about it. We can just say, hey, this is what made me cry. Uh, Into the Wild. Oh, is, that's is a the great one. one. Oh. Uh, Christopher McCandless, played by Emil Hirsch, uh, son of wealthy parents, graduates from Emory University as a top student and athlete. However, instead of embarking on a prestigious and profitable career, he chooses to give his savings to charity, rid himself of his possessions, and set out on a journey to the Alaskan wilderness. 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, that should be higher. Directed by Sean Penn. Yeah, absolutely should be higher than that. I, I, I want to be like, what critic did not like this movie? This was an amazing movie. Um, bonus point, amazing soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Done completely by Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. Yeah. I still have this soundtrack, and I listen to it often. Um, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Now, um, it, it won a lot of awards, got nominated for a lot of awards. Uh, let me just look at the Academy Awards here. One of the nominations was to best supporting actor, Hal Holbrook. Now, Hal Holbrook was an older gentleman Yeah, at this time, mm-hmm. older actor, and I can't remember. Let me click on him because I, I don't believe he's alive. I think he passed away. Oh, wow. Died earlier this year. January 23rd, mm-hmm. 2021. Uh, was born in 1925. 96 years old. And this dude in this movie. So, like, he on his way to Alaska, he has all these, like, adventures where he's, like, it, it it's a real weird 
uh, it's a really well done movie in that it sets up like the reason he's giving away all his possessions is because he's he's so fed up with society and in a way kind of fed up with humanity, right? He's, yeah. He's he doesn't want this, and then the whole time he's trying to escape to Alaska on this mission, he's confronted with the best of humanity, right? And it's not because they're great people. Like he runs into Vince Vaughn. Who's not, I mean, he's not a super great guy, but no. he's great to him. Yeah. Like there's a friendship. He, he just comes across all these friendships. And the final one is Hal Holbrook's character, uh, whose name is Ron Franz in the movie. And in this movie, he stays with him for a little while and he becomes like a father figure for him, which is important because um, it's made clear in the movie that Christopher does not have a good relationship with his parents or his dad that they wanted him to go into this like kind of cookie cutter world that he despised. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's this scene where he's, he's dropping him off basically to continue his journey out into the wild and, and how Holbrook is making like his, his last ditch effort to say, um, well, let me just, Oh, man, I got to find it. I got to find the quote because I'm sure the quotes on IMDb it's it's should be. Oh, man, it's so good. Should be the first quote, to be honest. Yeah, it's uh, just hang with me for a second because I want to find. So this is based on a true story. Yes. So it's based and, on a book written about this guy. Yeah. And like it, the movie even has a young Kristen Stewart in it. And at that time, I'm like, ah, she's a good actress. Okay. And then Twilight. And then. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, she's I'm not in going this movie to, too. I'm not going to blame her acting for why Twilight wasn't good. So. Right. Okay. So here's the scene. He's, he's got him in the truck. He's about to drop him off. He's about to leave him. He's, but he's saying goodbye. And uh, Hal Holbrook's character says, I'm going to miss you when you go. And Christopher says, I'll miss you too, but you're wrong if you think the joy of life comes principally from the joy of human relationships. So see, this whole time he's been trying to convince him, don't do this. Don't isolate yourself. He said, God's place is all around us. It is in everything and anything we can experience. People just need to change the way they look at things. Mm. So that's Christopher speaking. Yeah. And then Ron says this, who's Hal Holbrook's character. Yeah, I'm going to take stock of that. You know, I am. I want to tell you something from bits and pieces of what you've told me about your family, your mom and your dad. And I know you have problems with the church too, but there's some kind of bigger thing that we can all appreciate. And it sounds to me, you don't mind calling it God, but when you forgive, you love. And when you love God's light shines through you. And at some point in this speech, he says, I could be a dad to you. Oh yeah. Oh, Cody. Oh, younger Dave absolutely lost it in that scene as well. Yeah. And this was, I was not saved when I saw this movie, but that whole answer he gives, first of all, yeah, that's it, bro. Like Christopher, that's not it. You don't understand. The meaning of life is this connection we have with people, other people, how we're intrinsically connected. And that if we, if we intentionally isolate ourselves, that that's not good for us. And oh man, how Holbrook deserved to win the Oscar that year. And I'm a little upset he didn't. <laughs> I almost want to know who he lost to that year. Um, let's just look it up. Probably. Hal Holbrook. 
was nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the 80th Academy Awards. And it was won by... Better not be some jabroni. Oh, man, that's tough. Javier Bardem for No Country for Old Men. Oh, yeah, it's, that came out the same time. Yeah, and it's weird <laughs> to think of him as not the main character, but he wasn't. It was... Um, it was... Uh, Brolin. Yeah. Josh, Josh Brolin, Brolin is kind of the main character of that movie. So Javier Bardem, oh man, I still would have given it. The, I remember the problem being that, that in No Country for, or not No Country for Old Men, but in Into the Wild, Hal Holbrook is only on the screen for, I mean, we're talking 10 minutes. I was going to say 10 or 15 at most. But in that 10 minutes, I fell in love with his character. I, yeah. I was like, you can be my dad. <laughs> I was like, wow, it was so good. And I don't know how they judge. I know I've heard before that in those supporting categories, they get kind of some people would get marked off sometimes for not appearing in all that much of the movie. Oh, yeah. But sometimes they'll win. I mean, there have been some that have won where I remember them saying that they only appeared in like six minutes of total movie. Well, if you steal the movie, which yeah. I mean... He definitely took up like a big interest for me. So yeah, it's <sighs> into the wild. So good. Cried like a baby as one should. What's the, uh, what's the next one for you? Um, so like I'm going to preface this with like my wife is overly emotional. Mm. And so sometimes her emotions add to the emotion of the movie, <laughs> although I usually don't cry. And so this one, I'm going to say I got choked up on. I didn't like have like tears just streaming down my face. Uh, imitation Game. The Imitation Game starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, okay. Uh, and Keira Knightley. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, a really good movie. Uh, based, this was about the code guy, right? Yeah, based on another real-life story, which I find that real-life stories uh, tend to have more emotion, um, and it's a lot easier to relate to, uh, to be empathetic with. Um, but, yeah, 1939, British intelligence, M agency MI6, recruits a Cambridge mathematician, uh, Alan Turing, who is played by Benedict, and to crack the Nazis Enigma machine. And they do it, spoiler alert, um, and that kind of helps win the war. But uh, his personal life after that, like, spirals downhill uh, because of his sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And uh, he gets ostracized and he gets locked up. Because he is a gay man that uh, refuses to get married to a lady. Mm -hmm. And, like, Kira Knightley's, like, begging him to marry her. They don't have to do anything. It could just be for the charade of it all. It, just to keep him safe. And he doesn't mm -hmm. do it. And man. so he he dies. Um as a di disgraced hero. Wow. Wow. Uh, and, and is that, what's the scene that does it for you? That, that makes you cry? I, I think it's Keira Knightley when she's like pleading yeah. at this point 
Because she, she cares about him so much. Yes. Yeah. Like, she has befriended him. Uh, they dated and, like, got engaged. I don't think they get married. Um, but he basically says, I can't do this. And she's like, I know you can't, but you have to to stay alive. Like, I'm willing to put up with anything. I just want you to be with us and... No, man, I I have not seen that movie, and I'm now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure why, because I had intended to. It's just one of those movies that that kind of got lost for me. Um, yeah, good cast, uh, good movie, and I mean, again, another true story. It's got so. the Cumberbatch, the Cumberbatch, which you know, um, he makes another appearance on my list. There's honestly, he's one of the handful. I call them the handful of actors or actresses that I will see anything they're in. Um, Benedict, I, and I don't know why I didn't see this movie because I want to see him uh, in just about everything. But Denzel, oh Denzel, anything yeah. Denzel's in, I want to watch. Uh, there's just certain people that I'm like Mike Myers usually. Although we're not going to talk about the Love Guru. Um, Tom, <laughs> Hanks <laughs> is, Tom Hanks is on my yeah. list. So um, okay, the next movie for me. And this is a weird one. Only a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes, which... Um, oh, by the way, my movie had 89%. Yeah, I'm, I, don't, I don't agree with this one, although I can see why this one would be divisive. Uh, and, and this one will I will bring up again when we do our Christmas movie podcast. Oh. Because I contend that it is a Christmas movie. It's a movie called The Family Man. Oh, I thought you were going to say Die Hard. No, no. That one does not make me cry. <laughs> um, but The Family Man starring Nick Cage and Taya Leone. Don Cheadle is in this movie. Jeremy Piven. A lot, wow. of, lot of people in this movie. Directed by Brett Ratner. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a loosely adapted on It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Uh, made 124 million at the box office. Jacks, played by Nick Cage, Jack. Jack's lavish, lavish, fast-paced lifestyle changes one Christmas night when he stumbles into a grocery store holdup and disarms the gunman. The next morning, he wakes up in bed, lying next to Kate Taylioni, his college sweetheart. He left in order to pursue his career, and to the horrifying discovery that his former life no longer exists. As he stumbles through this alternate suburban universe, Jack finds himself at a crossroad where he must choose between his high-power career and the woman he loves. Although, I don't know that I agree with the premise of that last line, because it's not just the woman. He falls in love with his kids. That's what's so sweet about this yeah. story. Is this is uh, Don Cheadle's character is who's supposed to be like, he never refers to himself as an angel, but clearly he's an angel. He gives him this glimpse. It's this glimpse into the way his life could have been, Right. And it happens on a Christmas Eve night, and he wakes up on Christmas morning in this alternate universe where he's not like a high-powered Wall Street guy who's making millions. He's struggling, working at his father-in-law's tire store. <laughs> Last one does. And his and his biggest his biggest thing he hangs his hat on is he's he's amazing bowler. He carries his bowling team, <laughs> um, which that doesn't happen. There's there's hilarious scenes as he's like completely out of place, right? Yeah. Um, I found this movie to be wonderful, and 
I don't know if it just hit me. So when this movie comes out in 2000, this hits me at the age of 24 and I really fell in love with it over the next couple of years after it came out, 25, 26. This is really a phase in my life where, man, I had a lot going for me as far as like, I was in shape. I was playing basketball a lot. Like I, I, I mean, I was able to attract women. I went out on dates, but I was really looking for something more. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want to be alone. I wanted to find someone that I could like really share my life with. And I remember feeling lonely a lot in my mid twenties. And so this movie, when it comes out about this guy who has this amazing life, like, so we talk about this a lot on our radio show, Cody, where there are things we try to fill in this emptiness in our heart with yeah, all the luxuries of the world and none of them satisfy. And so that's what he basically learns over the course of this movie is that his amazing life, single life as a bachelor, a 40 year old bachelor, a millionaire, you know, having the companionship of many women, fancy car, fancy penthouse apartment, you know, in New York city. Um, over the course of this movie, he finds out that changing poopy diapers and, you know, waking up and drinking a pot of coffee to go work his job at a tire store, but, but that his family and, and this connection, this familial thing is what really is, is going to make him happy. And by the end of the movie, it's, it's almost heartbreaking because he, the end of the movie, the glimpse ends and he wakes up back in his former life after he's fallen Refallen for this woman he loves and newly fall. The, the heartbreaking part is he's newly fallen for these kids that were just, they weren't real mm. like his children. Yeah. And he wakes up and the desperation and sadness that eventually gives way to depression of him not no longer being in love with that life that he initially had is so like, man, it's heartbreaking. Even with Nick Cage's acting, <laughs> um, Nick Cage is the national treasure. I'm just going to say this might be Nick Cage's best acting job in The Family Man. And I don't know why more people don't talk about this movie. It's really good. And the end of the movie sees him stopping his old girlfriend and in this alternate universe, his wife from taking going. It's the reverse of what happened at the beginning where he went overseas for this internship and left her, left their relationship behind where she's about to take a job in somewhere overseas. And he stops her at the airport and basically asks her to, to, to have a cup of coffee with him. And the movie ends with them, her missing her flight and having a cup of coffee with him in the airport. And it's snowing. And man, I just remember watching that and just crying when that movie was over because it's just like, yeah, that's it, man. That's the secret of life. <laughs> it's coffee. Oh man. I love that movie. I watch it every Christmas. Still cry. Still cry. Okay. I'm going to steal another obvious one. All right. And this one I might get booed for because like, if you didn't cry at it, you are a stone cold killer. Okay. Marvel's in-game. Boo! <laughs> um, <laughs> Wait, you cried at in-game? What part? What part? The part. What do you mean, Iron Man? 
Benedict Cumberbatch looks at Iron Man, gives him the signal. The Cumberbatch. The Cumberbatch. He puts some respect on his title. <laughs> Sir Benedict Cumberbatch, as far as I'm concerned, he gives him the signal, like, this is the one and only way, and you know it's coming. You know it's coming. He pulls a Jesus, except he doesn't come back to life. He dies for everybody. So that all of humanity can live in peace and rejoice and celebrate that their loved ones are back from the blip. But there he is just dying. And then Peter Parker is trying to have a moment and then they have to push him out so the missus can have a moment. And then, of course, we have the funeral scene and I love you 3000. I'm going to say something probably incredibly unpopular. Oh, don't you dare. <laughs> to me, that I didn't cry at that scene because it didn't feel right. That felt like to me like that was supposed to be Steve Rogers. To me, it should be Steve Rogers that sacrifices himself for everybody. It feels weird to me that it's Tony Stark. Okay, so from a comic book perspective, I agree that... Which is the perspective I'm usually coming from. Captain should have been the guy, but from like the MCU perspective, yeah. Iron Man's the one that starts it all. I get, yeah, and I understand that. And he's there from beginning and to I end. I agree. And like they build up such a great storyline of, I just want to be a family man. That's what it's all about for me, is just my family. Mm -hmm. And then we come to a place where. For his family to continue, he has to die. I actually cried. I did not cry at that scene, but I did cry in Infinity War when Peter, when he holds Peter as Peter is saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Yeah. That to me brought tears to my eyes. But yeah, I didn't have it. I'm sorry. I don't know. I just, it, something just didn't work for I me. I even got like teary eyed as the man next to me was like loudly sobbing. <laughs> there were, that's no joke. There were people in the theater. I remember that. So I saw, I saw in game probably three or four times in the theater. And I think at every showing I could hear people sobbing yeah. in, that, in that part. I saw it at least twice. And every time someone was loudly, sobbing. you go kick rocks, Ridley Scott. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I'm going to throw out a weird one, and it's uh, not mine, and so I won't spend a lot of time on it. it. It's my wife's. And this was like the weirdest moment I've seen someone cry at, but it was uh, Deadpool. It was during Deadpool. She cried during Deadpool. Um, and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write down the, the number of a therapist. Here. <laughs> I'm but, just kidding. I mean, I'm just kidding, Leah. <laughs> like, yeah, there the love story that was built in Deadpool and like with uh what's her name? Yeah. What's uh, her name? <laughs> uh, Monica, Monica, that's the actress's name. Monica Burin, Burin, I don't remember. Yeah, I can't remember like cuz like I've seen Deadpool a couple times, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to rewatch this today. Um, and so, yeah, if we have my wife on, you'll have to ask okay. about Deadpool. All right. Interesting. Okay. My last one, and this is the obvious one for any dude. Oh. This, I, I think this is the ultimate guy cry movie. 
Um, and especially anyone with daddy issues. Uh, that movie was is Field of Dreams. Um, okay, so when you first started off, I was like, if he says Armageddon, <laughs> no, I'm walking. No, out. although if we were, if this, if the name of this episode was movies, I'm embarrassed to say made me cry. <laughs> Armageddon's definitely on that list. I, I can't lie. The first time I saw, not in repeat viewings, but the first time I saw Armageddon, where Ben Affleck is like, no, I love you, as Bruce Willis is sacrificing himself. Uh, yeah, that made me cry. Like. A baby. Okay. I just admitted that in the <laughs> podcast, but only the first time I saw it. Um, no, Field of Dreams. Well, let's just let's do what we do. 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, which means 13% of critics don't have a soul. <laughs> <laughs> Iowa farmer Ray, played by Kevin Costner, hears a mysterious voice one night in his cord field saying, If you build it, he will come. He feels the need to act. Despite taunts of lunacy, Ray builds a baseball diamond on his land, supported by his wife, Annie, played by Amy Madigan. Afterward, the ghosts of great players start emerging from the crops to play ball, led by shoeless Joe Jackson. But as Ray learns, this field of dreams is about much more than bringing former baseball greats out to play. And we learn that, like, the whole movie is this mystery. Basically, there's mystical things happening dead baseball players playing baseball in a cornfield and, and, and that they only, they can see them, right? Yeah. For the, for most of the movie, no one else can see them. Um, and it's, he's getting these cryptic messages from a voice, right? If you build it, he will come go the distance, uh, ease his pain. And, and the whole movie, he's, you're, he's trying to put it together. He does all this. And finally, Finally, he they were playing another team, and you understand through the course of the movie that Kevin Costner's character Ray had serious issues with his father. Like they didn't talk after a certain amount of time, and he passes away at some point um, without them having spoken much. And the 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 shoeless Joe, who's kind of the another of the main characters, he's the first ghost to show up. Um, kind of points him towards this catcher who takes off his mask and reveals himself to be a young father. He's, he's, he's Ray's father, but younger is the ghost of Ray's father, essentially. Mm. And, and in this wonderful moment, the man, the movie plays this so well in this wonderful moment, Kevin Costner thinks he's putting it there. He's like, he says, go the distance, ease his pain. And he says, he says it was, it was you most looking at his father and then the camera pans back to shoeless Joe and he says, no, Ray, it was you. And you just like, and even then immediately you're like, Oh, I feel it. I feel the waterwork. I told myself, Keep him in. I told myself I wasn't going to cry. And you, you, you think you're going to be successful because he starts talking to his dad. It's kind of awkward. And he's like, this is my home. And he's like, Oh, is this heaven? I'm like, no, it's Iowa. Blah. You know, he gets cutesy and you're like, okay, I'm not going to cry. And then his dad says, I got to go. And he starts walking away and then it happens. Dad, do you want to have a catch? Oh, oh yeah. All the water. I, that is one of those scenes where it doesn't matter if I haven't watched the movie. I could just be turning channels back when we had channels to turn and catch the last 10 minutes of that movie. And I'll ball like a baby every time, mm. every time. 
every time, Cody. I mean, serious, like, sobbing, crying. Beautiful. I think it's a beautiful movie. Beautiful story. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. The ultimate guy cry movie. It, I defy anyone who has any issues with their fathers. Anyone who has any, t- like, I wish I would have done more of this with my dad. Or especially when you don't have that time anymore. Oh, man, that's a hard movie. That's a hard one to watch. You know, like, Kevin Costner, like, him in roles where he's either the dad or he's the son, like, he has a certain charisma about him that it's like, okay. He's a great everyman. Yeah. Like... No, Clark, don't save me. I don't buy him as much when he's like alpha male guy, like he is in Yellowstone, right? Where he's like this alpha male dude. He's not as interesting to me in those roles. It's when he's Ray Kinsella. Uh, I I just find him way more interesting as an everyman. He captures it for me. I don't know. Yeah. He's good. Yeah. Okay. So you do you have another movie or did you have TV a couple TV episodes you wanted to throw out at me? Okay. So I'll just throw out a movie that like in theaters, not on repeat showing, but in theaters that got me choked up, which was Toy Story Three. Ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, when they're on the conveyor belt to be incinerated, mm. like they had built up like so much connection with the previous two movies, and that movie, I was like, oh, you can't do this to me, Disney Pixar. They didn't. Thank goodness. So um, I didn't cry at that movie, but Savage. This I'll tell you why. There's a hole in my pop culture fandom. The late nineties. I kind of have a hole in my, my pop culture fandom where I was, I was so involved in other things in my life. Like I was really into being in shape, kind of obsessive about it. I went to the gym a lot and I didn't watch a lot of movies and TV at that time. And so I, I didn't get in on the first couple toy stories. And then by the time I saw them, I hadn't really, I wasn't really invested in those characters is it. I thought it was funny. I like toy story. Thought it was a great movie, but I just wasn't invested in them. So when I saw Toy Story three, I was just like, "Eh, no, yeah." <laughs> Sorry, I know that disappoints some people. You're, I was older. It just hit me at a weird age. Where well, for you, you, like, yeah, for you, it would have been like, yeah, that's your wheelhouse of of formative emotional movies. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, that happened. Um, so TV shows. I do have several, but um, to start off, I'm going to go with a TV series that it had a couple episodes that made me cry, but this one in particular, and if you watch the series, you for sure cried at this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the TV show Scrubs, mm. and um, it's when Brendan Fraser dies. Hmm. Because he is Dr. Cox's uh, brother-in-law and just super nice, just a sweetheart. And then this death kind of comes out of the blue. There's a lot of sentimental things that happen in it. Um, Dr. Cox cries, which, like, um, never, never shows emotion like that. He is man's man, calls the lesser men by girls' names and, like... But no, this um, this episode 
when Scrubs decides to be more of a drama and have those teary-eyed moments, mm-hmm. it, it nails it perfectly. Because most of the time you're like, oh, this is a fun, kind of goofy show. But no, it is um, yeah, again, that episode. Er, so late 90s, early aughts, that hits me. That hits me in my kind of, I got a pop culture gap there. So I never really watched Scrubs. Oh. Sorry. 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, in case you're wondering. Bill Lawrence makes great shows. I'm going to give him that. So I don't know who that is. Um, he's the co-creator of a one Theodore Lasso. Well, then he's got my vote. I love Ted Lasso. Um, and I've seen some episodes of Scrubs. My wife tried to get me into it because she loved Scrubs. Danielle, I'm on your side. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're, uh, we're going to get ready and go here. I want to hear from people listening. Go on our Facebook page. Leave us a message or you know a post that says, what movies make you cry? We did ask it in a question here about a week back or so. Yeah. Um, but if you've got a movie or a TV show you think we missed... Oh, um, I'm surprised you didn't say this TV show. Which one? Ted Lasso. Oh, yeah. Um, Ted. There's so many TV shows that I've cried intermittently at. So, I don't know that I could. Like, obviously, Ted Lasso. Like, the episode where you find out about Ted Lasso's dad. Yeah. That episode, like, I'm watching it in my bed what next to my wife as she's trying to sleep because I'm preparing for the podcast. <laughs> and, like, I just start having tears pour down my face, and I'm trying not to, like, sob. And I'm like, <laughs> it's not going keep well. it together. Oh, because, I mean, there's so much, like connectivity and similarity between Rebecca and Ted's like dads, but then like, it's still different, but yet there it encompasses like all emotions and, Oh yeah. And like when Ted's crying, I'm crying. So yeah. So no, I, it, Ted last time we cried pretty much any episode of this is us. Uh, <laughs> That shows just this is me crying. So. I, I figured, yeah, I figured I didn't. <laughs> this is me crying. I figured <laughs> I didn't have to mention that one because I think everyone cries at This Is Us. Um, uh, I'm trying to. Just lots of. I can distinctly remember crying in an episode of Friends, um, the episode where Ross and Rachel break up, where Ross is, I will say, accidentally kind of cheated on her because they were he thought they were on a break she didn't think so <laughs> we were on a break that's played for comedy but there's this this point in that follow-up episode where they're arguing and she says they're over and he like slides down her with his arms around her and he basically goes into like begging in desperation mode and that was like yeah i teared up a little bit it's weird to say yeah i cry i think i cried at that episode of friends that was sad and then, you know, you go to the next episode where Ross is kind of a dingus again. You're like, I can't believe I ever was rooting for that guy. <laughs> <laughs> the Friends. I recently rewatched Friends. This is neither here nor there. I recently rewatched Friends and I realized that, like, um, yeah, I don't know that I would want to be friends with any of these people. <laughs> oh, no. They all they all kind of have, like, some faults that are just a little much for me. <laughs> um, like... I think you would have to grow up with them and be part of the yeah. group to, like, 
tolerate them. The way they treat, like, I know this is coming off as woke, and you can go find a million woke articles about why Friends is awful now. And I still enjoy it. I, I think it's a funny show. But Ross is kind of awful by the end of that show. Yeah. <laughs> The, the way he treats people. Rachel's the same way. Jennifer Aniston's character is really, like, shallow. I don't know. Spoilers. Yeah. Okay. That was stuff that made us cry. Like I said, uh, jump on our Facebook page, Pop Culture Pastor, or a Twitter page if you have stuff we think we, you think we missed, which I'm sure there's a lot. Oh, yeah. We didn't mention any rom-coms. Yeah, no rom-coms. I didn't mention... Um, uh, uh, Terms against of all, yeah, terms of endearment, <laughs> against Sophie's all choice, <laughs> steel magnolias. I know they're out there. There's uh, even Titanic. Oh, hey, listen, I, that was one bonus. Here's some bonus material for you. I walked out of the theater of Titanic and just like tears streaming down my face. Not so much from Jack, just from like the depiction of all that lost life. Yeah, like that was that was a very graphic and real depiction of people that. Like drowned in icy water. That was rough. I still think she could have scooted it over. You know, it was the most. Uh, here, here's what we'll leave you with: most tear-inducing part of the Titanic movie when when the band keeps playing the the violinist and the they keep playing. Been it's been a pleasure. Mm. The band nerds. Love them. My wife will appreciate it. Yeah, it was great stuff. Hey, we got to get out of here. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Uh, we've made six of these now. So go back and listen to old ones if you haven't listened to them all. Drop us a line on our Facebook page or Twitter. You can find it by searching Pop Culture Pastor. Have a great week, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>